Welcome to the Fit for Golf podcast. I am your host, Mike Carroll. The goal of the Fit for Golf podcast is to share insightful and entertaining conversations based around golf, fitness, and health. In today's episode, I have the honor of speaking with Larry Mize. Larry played in over 600 PGA Tour events, won the 1987 Masters, played in the 1987 Ryder Cup, and now plays on the Senior Tour. In this episode, we discuss Larry's famous Masters win and his Ryder Cup experience, but also get into other topics, including different instructors he worked with, how he has implemented modern technology in his practice, how he prepares for events, and the transition from the PGA to Senior Tour. I believe there are takeaways for all levels of golfer, and I could have listened to Larry talking golf all day. This podcast is sponsored by the Fit for Golf app, the only golf fitness resource you will ever need. Check it out on www.fitforgolf.blog. It is not available in the App Store. Today I am joined by a very special guest, a man with 613 PGA Tour events, four wins including the 1987 Masters, 11 second place finishes, nine third-place finishes, 86 top tens, 411 cuts made, plus 233 Champions Tour events. Larry Mize, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks, Mike. Uh, it's nice to be with you. Well, that's a lot of golf right there. <laughs> that, that, that is a lot of golf. So my first question is, have you got it figured out? Uh, no. That, you know, that's the great thing about this game. You, you never really get it totally figured out. You know, I'm 61 years old now and I'm still, you know, still learning and still uh, trying to get better and improve. So, uh, I think that's one of the things that keeps us coming back. You, you just never can master this game. So I, I still enjoy, uh, going out and practicing and working on it. Yeah. So you nearly answered my, my, my next question. How does your desire to improve now compare to when you were starting out on the tour? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I probably am more into learning about the swing and different things now than when I was younger. When I was younger, it was all about playing. And, you know, I didn't know the swing as well as I do now. I just went out there and played and scored, which was which is actually a good thing. Um, so I, I enjoy learning. Uh, you know, I don't uh, – you know, the fire doesn't burn as bright now as when I was younger, you know, uh, but I still enjoy it. I still enjoy competing and the, the, the camaraderie and the fellowship with the, with the guys out there. I still enjoy that. But, uh, yeah, I, I still enjoy going out there and uh, practicing and uh, learning. And, uh, you know, it's nothing like hitting good shots and seeing that ball fly down the fairway or fly at the pin. Yeah, no, that's great. We're going to get into um, kind of some of your career highlights in a second, but something I wanted to touch on that I'm always interested in with, with players is how did you get onto the tour? Was that pretty seamless for you? Did you go to college and then go through Q school or what was your pathway to actually getting on the PGA tour? Because sometimes that can nearly be the hardest part for people, I think. Well, it really can be. And, and, and it took me a while. I, I went and played golf at Georgia Tech there in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and then I, I turned pro after Tech and went to tour school three times. I went to tour school in the spring of 80 and uh, was, was enrolled in the fall of 80 as well, but I made the cut in the Southern Open, which is played at Green Island here in Columbus, Georgia, where I live, and I decided to go play Pensacola and try and 
work my way out there that way. And so I skipped tour school and I went to Pensacola and missed the cut by one. Cause if you made the cut back then you get to keep playing. So if I'd have made the cut at Pensacola, I would have gotten to play Tucson the first event next year, but I missed the cut there. So I went back to tour school in 81 and was, was better, but still uh, made it to the finals. But I, you know, had to learn to control my temper a little better. Uh, kind of got angry the last day and shot 76, I think, and, and missed missed out. And then fortunately, at the in the fall of 81, because back then you had tour school, I think 81 was the last year. You had it uh, twice a year. Uh, so I got through in 1981, and I got out in 1982, which was was interesting, and, and I really think it was good for me because I was still pretty green. I was no great All-American or anything coming out of college. I still needed to learn uh, learn some things, and you know the all exempt tour was starting in '83, so '82 was still the the rabbits as they called us. You had to do that's what you need to qualify every week, right? Exactly. So you had to qualify every week. If you didn't qualify, now you had to find something to do for a week, and uh, so it really uh, brought me along as a player, having to go through that. You know, you get in town, you play a practice round Sunday before qualifying, you qualify Monday, and. Sometimes it was at the tournament site. A lot of times it was off at an off-site tournament, of course. And uh, if you got in, then you went and had to play the golf course on Tuesday to try and learn it and then tee it up. And if you made the cut by, by Friday, you're, you're kind of worn out. You played a lot of golf, and uh, you're kind of uh, – a lot of times I'd make the cut and shoot uh, a pair of 77s on the weekend and make like $300. So um, actually when I first got out there, I'm telling my age now – you could make the cut and not make any money. You know, the last few spots did not make any money. So uh, that didn't last long. But so that was my road to get out there. It was a, uh, you know, I remember the last tour school I went to in the fall of 81. I told myself, I said, well, if I don't get through this time, I guess I'm done. So things worked out really well. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Um, did you find that there was particular components of your game that just weren't up to the level or was it more so like the sort of looking after your attitude thing and just staying on more of an even keel was the big thing for you? Uh, that's, that's part of it. Now that's a good question. I think a lot of it was that I had a lot of players. Um, three that I remember is uh, Gary player, Butch Baird and Chi Chi Rodriguez were very kind to me out there. I remember Gary Player told me at one time, why are you going to go get angry out there and throw away all the work you've done? Your anger is not doing any good. And uh, Chi-Chi and Butch always were very encouraging to me, telling me that I was a good player and uh, just, you know, to keep working hard and uh, and to score. You know, it doesn't have to look pretty. It's all about getting it in the hole. And and I, I one of my strengths was a good short game, so that really was good. But I had to learn to control my uh, – temper. I had to learn to be mentally tough, just the mental game I had to get better at and how to manage my game. And uh, that was, uh, I think those are the biggest components. I, I think the ball striking got better as I went out there, but uh, the biggest part is, you know, managing my game and, you know, you don't just play a par five and beat two shots. If you can't get there, you lay it up to the correct distance, give yourself a good wedge in there and just, uh, you know, strategizing. I mean, I can still remember, you know, learning to, okay, pins on the right side of the green. I'm trying to drive it down the left side of the fairway rather than just put it in the fairway. So, cause driving accuracy, I was not long, but I could put it in the fairway where I wanted to most of the time. So that's what I needed to learn out there. And, uh, it was a slow process. I, I played really well at the very end of the year to keep my card. 
Yeah, I was just going to ask, once you got out there, did you did you keep your car then continuously? You didn't have problems going back to Q school or anything? No, I was very fortunate. Um, you know, that was a you had to make top 125 in 1982 to get on the all exempt tour uh, to be on the, you know, stay on tour. And um, with two weeks left, I was 159th on the money list. Oh, wow. So, you know, I, I went to Pensacola, had my, I think it was my first top 10 and maybe my only top 10. I finished ninth at Pensacola and made $4,200 and, or for something like, for, something like that, 45 and went from 159 to 152. Uh, not as big a jump as I was hoping. And so then the last tournament was Disney World. It was a bigger purse. And I went in there thinking, okay, let's play well. Let's at least, at least make top 150. Because if you were 126 to 150 on the money list, you were exempt to finals. I wouldn't have yeah. to go back to the local qualifying. Well, after three days, I was eight under par and uh, shot a couple under the front. And I was 10 under. And I was still 10 under going into 15. 15, I made a, you know, long putt for birdie on 15. 16, I made another long putt for birdie. 17, I hit it in there close and made that putt for birdie. So now I'm 13 under par. And the 18th fairway looked about as wide as a bowling alley to me at that time. And I had no chance of hitting that fairway. So I drove it in the rough, you know, sloshed it out of the rough up there in front of the green, chipped it up there, you know, about a tester, you know, four to six feet and was able to knock that in to shoot uh, 67 and finish 13 under par. And then my wife was with me and my parents were with me. And uh, sure enough, the computers went down. (laughs) We had to wait around till about eight o'clock that night. And I'd tied for 11th, I think, and made $9,200 because it was a bigger purse and unbelievably went from 152 to 124. That and uh, was able to keep my card. And uh, I'll never forget my wife and I, we, from Orlando, we drove up uh, to Jacksonville. I played the Players' Championship, the PPC, on my way home because I knew I'd get to play it next year. So I was excited about that. Oh, nice. It was uh, by the skin of my teeth I got in there, and I was able to, you know, stay exempt. And it was, uh, it was you know, for me, you know, that was, that was a dream coming true for me. Yeah, small margins, as they say. Right. If we fast forward a little bit, Larry, so probably your best known for your 1987 Masters victory, which I'm sure you never get sick of talking about. When I was explaining to a couple of kind of my family members who were, uh, say, less passionate golf fans, I said, even though you might not be that familiar with Larry, I guarantee you recognize one of his golf shots, which is obviously the, the chip in in the playoff hole. But what's less mentioned is the birdie on the 72nd hole. So talk, talk us through that. Well, I mean, that is, you know, people don't bring that up. That's very nice of you to bring that up because that is a very uh, great memory for me. Um, you know, the previous year I'd, I'd blown the Players' Championship and I kind of, uh, you know, had a, had, a, had a poor label as a golfer, you know, that I'd blown, I'd blown that tournament. I had a four-shot lead and ended up losing it. So, uh to come in there and uh, make the birdie when I needed to was great because once again, I, I had the lead at Augusta after 13 and then I bogeyed 14 and 15 to give it back up. So I was one back and I parred set part 16 and 17 came to 18 and I'll never forget. I was playing with Curtis strange and we were hitting at similar distances and I had the driver out and Curtis was up and he had a three wood out there. Perfect. And my caddy and I, Scott Steele, we both said, well, 
I think let's just hit a good three wood out there. So I hit a three wood out there beside the bunker and left me a, a big nine iron in there. I had about 140 yards and, you know, generally speaking, when you're under the gun, most of the time it's better to hit something hard rather than try and finesse something in there. Cause you're pretty nervous. So I hit a nine iron in there that landed on the lower tier and ran up the slope. Thank goodness it didn't go all the way up and it rolled back to about six feet. And, uh, so I had a good birdie putt and I knew I had to make it. And I was shaking in my boots over that birdie putt and to, to knock that in and uh, give me a chance to, to get in the, to, to win and to get in the playoff was, uh, very meaningful and very special for me to do that when I needed to. 72nd hole at Augusta. It was uh, very special. Where were you going into Sunday? How, how f- were you tied or were you off the lead by much? Well, I was really in a good position for me. I, I kind of, I'm fine flying under the radar. Uh, you had, at, uh, you had Crenshaw and uh, Maltby were leading, I think, at four under. Uh, you had some guys at, at thir- three under. You had, you know, and three under got in the playoff. Three under was a playoff. I was at two under. Uh, so I was playing with Curtis. He was two under. But right in there at two, three under, you had Bernhard Langer. You had Greg Norman. You had Seve Ballesteros, T.C. Chin, um, and may have been somebody else. But you had a lot of big names. So I was kind of, you know, took pressure off of me because I wasn't really in the spotlight. Were you probably third last group or something like that? There were three groups behind me. I had uh, Seve was behind me. Um, can't remember, maybe Seve was playing with T.C. Chen and then Langer was playing with Norman and then Maltby and Crenshaw were in the last group. So I was really in a great position to try and sneak in there and uh, have a chance. And, you know, I, I was playing really well uh, at the turn. I saw the leaderboard, you know, you're going down 10. You can see the leaderboard on 18. I saw my name up there and saw my name up there. Sure enough, then I decided to bogey 10 after seeing my name up there on the leaderboard in good shape. But, uh you know, after the part 11, I made a good up and down 11. Then I birdied 12 and 13, which was really, you know, really special as well. And then to, to give it back was disappointing. But to come through with that birdie on 18 when I needed to is uh, it's, a, you know, I obviously the chip, the, the chip is a bigger memory. But that's right behind it when you you birdie the 72nd hole in a major championship to give yourself a chance. That's uh, I was pretty cool. Yeah, that that's amazing. I think pretty much everybody who's listening to this will have seen the chip shot. But one thing that I always hear about Augusta is that kind of uh, video doesn't really do it justice in terms of the shots that you're hitting. When you were weighing up that chip shot, kind of what were your options or say, what was the potential of getting the ball close? You know, what was essentially the, like, I I presume you weren't saying to your caddy lining it up, I'm going to pitch this up and roll it right into the hole, you know? No, I wasn't. Uh, you know, I was just trying. My whole thought process was to, you know, Greg had put it on the right fringe, so he had a 30-footer or so, a long putt for birdie. So I said, let's hit a good chip shot up. Actually, it was a pitch. Hit a good pitch and run up there and uh, put it close to the hole, put pressure back on Greg. And the the greatest thing about the shot was, in my mind at that time, there was only, only one option. Um, and I always like to tell people, the worst thing you can do in golf or one of the worst things you can do is to be noncommittal and undecided. Um, I could not land a ball on the green and stop it because, you know, we were only three under the course was playing very hard and fast and the green is sloping away toward the water. So I putting it in the water was a legitimate concern based on the commentary that I was listening to. Is that correct? Like that ball could have, could have taken the slope and went into the water. Oh yeah, it, it really was. It was, it would have been a bigger concern in regulation than in the playoff, just for the standpoint, it's a do or die. I had to hit a good shot. 
you know, in, in regulation, I, I like to I tell people that I'd have probably chipped it 20 feet short, met, tried to make it, two-putted, made my bogey and go on because I've still got seven more holes. Now I had to hit a good shot. So the water's in play, but you got to be aggressive. You know, you had to put pressure back on him. So that was my thought process, and I didn't think I could hit – anything with less loft than my 56 degree sandwich, which is all I carried. I didn't carry a 58 or a 60 or anything at that time. So it was just a pitch and run playing a 56 back in my stance. And, you know, I picked a spot where I wanted to land it in the little upslope short of the green. And, you know, you practice this shot at Augusta because a lot of times with that sticky ryegrass, you know, especially back then, you couldn't really get up under the ball to hit a high lob shot. So you had to play this shot. So it's a shot we practice, but, you know, I was a little farther off the green than I wanted to be. And so I just uh, picked the spot, tried to hit a good aggressive shot to get around the hole. And, you know, I, I hit the spot good. And I always say I wish I could have seen my face because I'm sure my eyeballs got as big as golf balls um, or, or big as softballs maybe as it got closer. And, uh, you know, people say, did, when, did, when did you know it was going to go in? I said, well, I, didn't, I didn't do anything until that thing disappeared. And then I threw the club up in the air and jumped and, ran around and I was screaming like a madman. I was oh, yeah. so excited to, uh, you know, it was a dream come true just to play in the tournament for me being from Augusta and, you know, watching those great players and to be able to play in it and then have a chance to win it. And and then to beat two, you know, tremendous players like Seve Ballesteros and Greg Norman. And, and then to get the green jacket from my favorite golfer, Jack Nicklaus was just made it an unbelievable week for me. Yeah, no, something's, it's hard to beat really, Larry. Uh, last question on the Masters. Is the annual Champions Dinner your favorite night of the year every year? Well, it's definitely one of them. I, I look forward to that every year. It is such a special night. You know, it's just the past champions and the, the chairman, which is now Fred Ridley now, and the, the, the members, he, they're so good to us there. It's The food is great, as you can imagine. They've got great chefs there at Augusta. And just the fellowship we have and you know, for me coming along when I did, I, I've just somebody was saying. I guess I need to look this up, but I guess there've only been about three or four champions that I haven't been with because, you know, when I started going there, we still had Henry Pickard, Herman Kaiser, Claude Harmon. Um, you know, Ben Hogan didn't come, but Jackie Burke, um, of course, Mister Byron Nelson, Sam Snead, Gene Sarazen. I, I still remember giving Gene Sarazen a ride back to his hotel one of the first couple of years. And I, I was, I was loving it. They said, he needs a ride back. I said, I'll give him a ride back. That'd be great. So taking the Squire back was, uh, was a lot of fun. So it's just a, an unbelievable night. And, uh, you know, I hope, you know, you don't know what's going to, it's planned for November. I hope it'll, it'll happen, but uh, it's a, uh, it's a night I look forward to every year, no doubt. I bet so. Yeah, that's great. That win must've been pretty instrumental in getting you into the 87 Ryder Cup team. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I, uh, I'd, I'd played well the previous year at 86 and then, uh, 87, I had, you know, arguably my, my best year on the money list, at least I had a, you know, that win and some seconds, a lot of top tens. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, one of the highest honors you can have as a professional golfer, if you're a European player or an American player to play on the Ryder cup. And it's just, uh, an unbelievable competition and to, to play on that team and to have Jack Nicholas as, as the captain at Muirfield village there in Ohio is, Still, uh, you know, we lost, which was disappointing, but it's still just a, a, a tremendous victory. That because uh, you know we don't get to be together and have that kind of camaraderie uh, very often. So it was, uh, you know, just so exciting. It was some some great golf, and uh, I really enjoyed it. 
How did you find the nerves in the Ryder Cup compared to the major or compared to your majors? You know, you know, it's different. Uh, you know, the, the majors are unbelievable. Uh, and it's just a different kind of pressure because now all of a sudden it's not just you. You've got your team with you. You've got your country, your tour. I mean, it's just a lot of pressure. And and I think that makes kind of heightens your focus. And I think that's why you see such tremendous play at the Ryder Cup. Uh, you know, I think everybody plays so well because they're so focused because so much is riding on it from a uh, – you know, not from a monetary standpoint, obviously, because there's no money involved. I think now they donate it to charity, but just pure competition. And that's that's why we play the game. And uh, I just thought it was uh, it's a different pressure, but it's uh, unbelievable. I, you know, I I was like I won. I won. I was one one match, lost one and tied two, I guess. I think I was one one and two. Uh, actually, we we. Uh, we lost the match on Friday morning and Jack set us down, which was really disappointing. But then I played Saturday morning. We tied Saturday afternoon. We won. And then I had my match with uh, Sam Torrance on Sunday, which was, uh, you know, a good match. But it was uh, just a great competition. You you played with Lanny Watkins on day one against Faldo and Woosnam. Yes. That's a pretty formidable uh, European pairing to go up in if you if you look at the the record books it it really is they are and, and then uh, you know and we we had them and we just we let them back in no offense to them they played well but we didn't play very well the back nine and they were able to win the last hole I think to win one up or something but we I know we went to 18 and so you know Lanny and I were you know disappointed on that but uh, you know we just got to keep fighting and uh, you know came back and played with Hal Sutton uh, twice on Saturday and uh, we halved our match with, I think it was Woozy and Faldo in the morning. And then uh, a lot of fun. We beat, we beat Seve and Jose in the afternoon, which was, yeah, which was you know, obviously uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. They're a tremendous team. I'm, I'm not even so sure they lost yet uh, ever, but uh, we beat them. And uh, a lot of that was, uh, I had a great partner. Hal was, uh, he hit it so close on number one, they gave it to him. And on number two, they probably should have given it to him, but he tapped it in on two. So he, he played really well, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a fun match. That's great. Yeah, no, excellent memories, I'm sure. Getting uh, parts of big history with those, taking on those partnerships and being involved in those games. For the, for the people listening, that was actually kind of a, a pivotal Ryder Cup because it was the first time the Europeans had won on U.S. soil. Right. It was their first time winning two in a row. It kind of gave the Ryder Cup a little bit of resurgence in terms of, okay, this is actually, you know, a, a competitive competitive event now as opposed to the Americans kind of having their way with it a little bit. Well, you're right. And, and you know, I think uh, Sam Torrance or someone said that to me at the time. And at the time, I, you know, really didn't, didn't see it. But he was right, you know, because it was disappointing losing. But he was right. It really was uh, – it did, you know, kind of boost the Ryder Cup even higher. So uh, – and I tell you, that, that – that team was great. I mean, especially those, I think they did a special, I don't know if I ever saw it, but on the five of them, you know, with Woozy and Faldo and Sandy and Langer and uh, Seve. I mean, those, those, those five were just tremendous players. And uh, it was, uh, they really, uh, they really put, put Europe on the map and were great, great leaders for that tour. Moving a little bit on from say your, your playing accolades, Larry, something that, one of the things I try and do with this podcast is so obviously I talk a little bit about training, but I try and um, basically ask questions that I think listeners will be interested in. So most of the people listening to this are, are golf fanatics. They're very interested in 
not just hearing stories, but also kind of golf improvement. When you were playing as a professional, did you work with many instructors or were you more of a go-it-alone guy figuring it out for yourself? That's a good question. Um, I got with a, uh, a club pro, an older gentleman, uh, Mr. Luke Barnes, back in 79 uh, when I was at Georgia Tech. And we worked together through um, 89 or 90, somewhere around there. And, uh, you know, he was with me on the range in 87. We were working on things to get ready for the Masters. And, you know, he was great. And, uh, you know, I still look back. Uh, one of the hardest things I ever had to do was to call him and tell him that I was going to, you know, see another instructor because he was uh, – I just – I thought the world of Mr. Barnes. And I really enjoyed going to see him as much for the instruction as just the friendship that we had. Um, so – but after that, I have gone through a few. I worked with Ledbetter for a little while. And I worked with uh, Chuck Cook, uh, Butch Harmon a little bit. Uh, and then I worked with uh, Kip Pewterball. And uh, then, uh, you know, Mark Emmelman a little bit. And uh, uh, then Dr. Jim Suddy. So I have, I've run the gambit with instructors. And, you know, that's why I tell people, uh, I like to tell the younger guys, you really want to find somebody you like and stick with it. And I, you know, sometimes it's it's okay to move around instructors, but it really does help if you can find one instructor that you can stay with and work it out. And I made some mistakes and uh, with the instructors, and it was you know my fault. And uh, you know you learn from it and go forward. So I've and it's it's I've learned a lot, but then I've probably confused myself a little bit as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Can you can you dig in a little bit to say any of the maybe technical rabbit holes that you went down a little bit when you say mistakes? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, well, one of the mistakes I did is, you know, prior to with Mr. Barnes, we kept it real simple. He was a he was a Ben Hogan guy. We worked on making sure I had a good grip, making sure I rotate those hips and uh, eliminate the left side. You really want to make sure we're clearing the hips, good rotation. So not a lot of technical stuff. Well, then I moved over to David Ledbetter, and I was like, oh, this is cool. I want to I'm, I take in all this information. You know, I've got a lot more technical, some interesting. This would have been the advent of the video camera in golf instruction too, correct, yeah. around 1990 yeah. with David Ledbetter? Yeah, we did. We did video, and I tell you, we, we had, you know, a lot of success. I mean, I started working with David in 91, I think, and 93 working with him, and uh, – I had a really good year. It was part him and part Dick Coop. Uh, Dr. Dick Coop, I started working with on the sports psychology part of it. And Dick really helped me get out of my own way with my mind. And uh, I, you know, won twice on tour and once in the off season that year. So, um, but then I just started, I took in too much information. That was the part I did. I talked to Nick Price later about that. I wish I had talked to him earlier. And he kind of dictated the lessons a little more. And it's no fault of David's. David did what I wanted him to. But I just, since I didn't have any information, I was like a kid in the candy store just taking it all in and, and trying to learn. And I took in too much. And, uh, you know, that was uh, that hurt me a little bit. And uh, from then on, I, I think that's the biggest thing I learned. And uh, the other thing I just, you know, you, you, it, with instructors, I don't know. I just uh, I should have stuck it out more with some of them. But that's the way it goes. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. You see, obviously, you're someone who's interested in the mechanics and the and the technique side of things. Have you done any bits of coaching yourself? Has it been something you've you've gone into at all? 
No, I really, I don't really have any desire to do that. I mean, I, I enjoy helping people. Don't get me wrong. And I'll, if someone asks, I'll do whatever I can to help them, but I don't want to get into that part of it. I just, uh, I don't think I'm, uh, I don't think I'm talented enough in that area. Um, I think it's a lot easier for me to help a, a good player. Uh, sometimes in, in, in pro-ams, you know, I'm trying to help them and I want to make sure I don't mess them up. So I just, uh, you know, I think I'd, maybe I'd be an okay teacher, but not, I, I don't think I'd be that good. So I'm going I'm to leave that to other people. And I still enjoy playing. I enjoy the playing part of it much more than the teaching part. Yeah, no, that's great. So this kind of ties in with what you were saying about information You've played professional golf and you're still playing professional golf with and without the aid of technology. So kind of, I suppose, around 1990, when you went to David Ledbetter was when video cameras and slow motion video became started to become popular. Now we have launch monitors, force plates, 3D analysis, essentially anything you can think of. How much, if any, of the more modern technology have you used in your own practice or in your own development? Well, that's a good question. You made me think. Probably one of the mistakes I did make, you made me think about this, was the video and was probably, I probably did it too much because I was way too critical and I picked at it too much. Kind of like when you're picking at a scab, it's never going to get well. And so I still have that trouble today. I look at it and it's like, oh, well, that could be better and everything. And, you know, golf swing is never going to be perfect. And you just want to get your swing and know what your swing is and go from there. So I think that was one of the mistakes I made video and in getting too much into that part of it. Because before I just, I let the ball tell me everything and the ball doesn't lie. I just watched the ball, made adjustments and uh, went with where the ball was going good. Then I knew everything was better. Um, but I, but I enjoyed that. That was the problem. I really enjoyed that part of it. And so I got into it too much. And I still, I hit balls this morning and I videoed and I was picking at it this afternoon. <laughs> and I, I shouldn't. It's uh, making me rethink a little bit. But uh, it's really good. But th- it is amazing because there's so much, uh, you know, I, the track man is an amazing thing with, with wedges, controlling your distance, uh, your spin, and also, you know, testing golf clubs on it. Um, obviously working with you, I, I, I'm able to use one to, uh, try and get some more club head speed and, uh, it, it's great to have that feedback. So used properly. I think it's just an amazing technology that we have today that the kids use and it, it, it's great. I think it's really good. And, uh, I, I enjoy, I enjoy that part of it. How, do you, do you think your swing has changed at all? just from the newer golf clubs, say, without you trying to do anything differently? Do you think you naturally gravitated to swinging any differently, you know, moving from the the older wooden clubs to the kind of lightweight, you know, shafts with the bigger heads now and trying to change the launch conditions and things like that? Yeah, not really. I mean, if you look at my swing years ago and now, I mean, I, I sure I could pick out some little things where it's changed, but the overall look is still the same. I've always been a little uh, uh, in to out, swinger uh it's still in doubt um and so it, it's you know some small changes but if you ask people say it's still the same way they they did one thing uh i think on the championship tour a few years back they put a swing in 93 of mine versus a swing now and they were unbelievable yeah so you know you think gee i've done all that work it hadn't changed much but you know it's uh 
that's just the way that's just the way it goes. I mean, that's that's the thing, and I like to tell people, it's your swing. You got to learn how to play with your swing and get an instructor that's going to teach you with your swing and not try and change you into somebody else because you know you're better off with your swing than somebody else who just want to make your swing as good as you can. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. I think that's something that kind of regardless of the level of golfer you are, you can struggle with that, you know, kind of how your technique looks versus essentially how you can play golf. Right. I mean, you know, Lee, Lee Trevino had his swing. You didn't want to change that. It was a great swing and it worked and wasn't like a lot, wasn't like everybody's swing, but just make it right. And, you know, of course, Lee knew what he was doing. Of course. Yeah. So we're recording this on July 24th, 2020. So we're kind of in the middle or hopefully maybe closer to the end of the the coronavirus shutdown stuff, but the Champions Tour is starting up next week again. You'll be back playing. And this ties in nicely with what we were talking about in terms of technique, practicing on the range, tinkering with your mechanics versus going out and playing and learning how to score. So when you're on an off week from a tournament, how do you split up your time, say, versus on the range compared to playing the golf course, playing people in competitive matches, Sort of, how does a week look for you when you're preparing for a tournament? Well, that's a really good question. Um, there have been times I've spent too much time on the range and uh, not enough on the short game because I always like to tell people you got to keep your strength strong and try and make your weaknesses better. But too many times people, and I've probably been guilty of this at one point or another, you try so hard to make your weaknesses better, you lose your strengths and you can't ever want to do that. So, um, I try and spend a lot of time on my short game. Um, we've got some good young players here in town. I think Russell Henley that plays a PGA tour lives here now. And he and I'll go out and play a game of 21, a little, a little chipping, a pitching around a green where you hit each hit two balls and you keep score with who's closest and so forth. And, uh, it's a great game because there's nothing like competition when you're practicing, because that's one of the hardest things to do in golf is to, recreate tournament-like pressure and conditions. So we'll compete on the putting green. We'll compete around the green and uh, work on that. And that's just – that's priceless to me because I still think, you know, best ball strikers in the world are going to miss on average four or five greens around. And you got to be able to get up and down. So I try and – I would rather – I like to spend at least half my time practicing on the short game, at least actually more on the short game than the long game. And then you got to get on the golf course. Uh, I haven't been playing that much. I haven't played much this week. So the next two days, I will definitely be out on the golf course because I think I've always felt like one ball flying at the pin on the dry, on the golf course is worth 50 on the driving range. It's kind of the way I think of it. And, you know, you see a lot of people hitting balls and they look really good on the driving range and you get them on the golf course and, you know, they're not quite as good because it's a whole different animal golf course versus range. And it's, it's great. You love hitting it good on the range, but you want to be able to get on the golf course. So I think I like to tr- do as much practicing as I can on the golf course. I'd say between divvying it up, you know, 40% of my practice on the, on the golf course. Uh, and sometimes I'll fall short of that, but that's what I'd like to do because that's where you really find out what's going on. You know, you can practice all you want, but until you get on the golf course and put it under – a little bit of pressure there. You really aren't sure what's going on. Yeah, no, good points. I think I think listeners can definitely take from that, trying to get a balance on what they're doing with their sort of limited practice and play time. If so, interesting talking about you competing with the PJ Tour player in some of your 
practice sessions. Obviously, transitioning from the PGA Tour to the Senior Tour, we all know there's a difference in length of golf course and how far players tend to hit the ball. Do you see differences in quality in the other parts of the game? Like we, we know that somebody at you know 65 isn't going to be hitting the ball as far as they are at 35 if they're a, if they're a professional golfer as much as we can try and help them with you know training and lifestyle and stuff like that but what about the other areas of the game that are a bit more skill dependent and less dependent on physical qualities is your short game now as good as it was when you were at the peak of your pga tour career is your putting as good uh you know i don't see how it can be i mean i, I know you'll hear some people say i'm playing as good as i ever have uh but Gee, I sure hope it's not. I mean, you know, I, I just think, I mean, my, I, my short game when I'm, when I was 20, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I sure hope it was better than it is now. And not that it's bad now, um, but uh, I think it was better then. I mean, I, my nerves had to be better then. So, uh, you know, you try and keep it sharp. Um, and, uh, but I just don't see how. Oh, I mean, is, is that sometimes. because you were, say, practicing harder and you were more motivated then? Well, or is there something to do with 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 age? Like is like when it's such a skill dependent activity, say, do you do you think it's do you think there's something physically or say neurologically is happening? Or is it more so you were just you were practicing and to a higher level then? Well that's that's a really good question. I mean, uh you know, I think I think I was practicing good then, but I mean I, I've worked hard on my short game uh in the last uh year or so uh here. I just uh, I just have a hard time. I think, you know, obviously, as you get older, the nerves in the field just can't be as good as it was when you're younger. Now, the, the positive is I may know a few more shots now around the green than I did when I was younger, so that could offset a little bit. But I think if I somehow you were able to magically put 28-year-old me against 61-year-old me, if I was 28 and my, uh, 61 beat me, I would not be happy, you know. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but – you know, short game is one of my strengths. So I, I don't, I, I hope it's fairly close, but I just think it's, uh, you know, not as good. I mean, putting, I think I can feel the nerves putting uh, more now than I did back then. I don't think there's any question. So that may be something neuro, neurologic, neurological, can't get the word out. But, uh, so I think it could be some of that. And, uh, and, you know, obviously I'm younger, I probably am practicing more, even though I try and practice hard now, but it's hard to practice as hard when you're older as when you're younger. You're younger, you're stronger, you're better shape. It's just, it's hard to do it. No, that's interesting. Really, really good points. Um, how interested were you in fitness and training physically during your career? You know, I really didn't do much of anything until around 1990. Uh, you know, growing up, you know, weights were, don't do weights it'll mess your golf up back in, uh, you know, the 70s and 80s. You just didn't do it. And uh, so we still there, got a lot of that, though. What's that? That, that, that? That's not gone away. There, there's still plenty of media would, would like to, to give that warning quite regularly. If you watch, uh, it's, it's changing, but that's, that's still a battle that you get. Oh, well, regularly. I, I don't hear that anymore because, I mean, well, we all know that it, it can be good. You know, I've, I've uh, you know, worked out uh, – uh, ever since then, I've kind of worked out cardio and, uh, you know, tried to do the proper weights. And uh, it's been, uh, you know, I've, I've, I enjoy that part of it. You know, I enjoy what you and I are doing. Uh, I think it's helping. And uh, there's no question when you get your you get your body stronger, you know, especially the legs, the core, get that working better. You're just uh, better prepared to go out there and play. And what 
sometimes people don't think about not only does it help you physically, but it helps you mentally because, you know, you can say, you know, you tell yourself, I prepared mentally, I prepared on the range and I prepared physically. I'm prepared to go play well. So it's a plus in your psyche to, you know, have worked out and be in good shape because, you know, that's a plus. You can feel like whether you are or not, you say, I'm in as good a shape as anybody else out there. And it's a plus. And so that helps your confidence and gives you a good feeling out there. No, that's 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 really interesting. And I know you said you kind of didn't do a whole lot until 1990. So you were a pro maybe 10 years at that stage. That would be about accurate. Well, I've been a pro 10 years. I've been on tour for uh, eight or nine years. Yeah. And so, I, yeah. Yeah, b- before that, did you play any other sports? Did you have an athletic background or was it just golf? I, I played uh, basketball through high school. Growing up, I played baseball, football. I kind of did it all. Uh, but then once I got to uh, uh, middle school, it just became uh, basketball and golf. And then the basketball went away after uh, high school. And I just did golf from then on. So, you know, I'm, I, was, I was a decent athlete and, uh, you know, just lo- love sports, period. But I uh, – you know, didn't uh, that? That was kind of my history of sports. Yeah, probably gave you a good boost though in terms of for your just athletic ability to transfer to the golf. If you say, well, I don't think it's the same anyway. But if you're not say a huge workout guy, I think having other sports in your background is is hugely beneficial. Yeah, and I think you know you look at most golfers. Uh, you know, whether we look at it or not, most of us are pretty good athletes and. Uh, we have good hand-eye coordination. You know, it's pretty hard to do it if you don't. So uh, I think that that does help. And I think, you know, the, the background in sports sure didn't hurt. You're right. Okay, that's great. Larry, I am conscious of your time, and I'm very grateful for you coming on. So I just have one more question to wrap up, if that's okay, please. Something I try and ask yeah. all the professional golfers that come on. You've obviously played with lots of amateurs and pro-ams and just recreational golf. If there's one concept or theme that you could try and tell golfers that they could do to improve their game, what would it be? doesn't have to be a small tip, just, just any concept or piece of general advice you think that amateurs often get wrong. Um, that's a good question. You know, biggest thing I always go to is a short game. Um, you know, obviously some amateurs have a hard time hitting the ball and their swing could get better, but very seldom do you find a amateur that's, you know, struggling with his game that his short game is probably not even worse. Uh, so my biggest thing was I'd, I'd say just work on the short game. And it's amazing how that can carry over into the long game. Cause I mean, pitches and all the pitches is a mini swing. And uh, obviously, you know, you're not going to start pitching it good and your swing is going to be perfect all of a sudden. I'm not, I don't mean that, but it just can really help and it takes the pressure off your long game. When you know you've got a good short game, you're not in, there's not as much pressure on your long game to hit the perfect shot, which is, you know, good for pro or amateur. So I think the biggest thing is, you know, to learn how to play golf around the hole. I think that's always a great way for kids to start to learn how to play around the green and to, to putt and chip and pitch it and stuff. And I still think amateurs spend too much time on the driving range and not enough working on the short game. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot here and try and get you to dig one layer deeper just on that topic, okay? So this is going to go out on a Friday night. There'll be people practicing all weekend. Is there one concept you can give people to work on if they go to the pitching green tomorrow or Sunday? They have a half dozen golf balls with them. Is there a universal bit of advice that you can 
provide them to get, I don't know, the basic pitching mechanics or something to develop their strike or control? Yeah, two things I would say. Set up with a majority weight on your left side because you see people hanging back on their right side and trying to scoop it. So set up with the weight on your right side and, let, and do side. not try and get the ball in the air. Just swing through. If, if you have to, swing it like a putter, and you'll realize there's plenty of loft on the club. Don't try and let the ball get – don't try and lift the ball in the air. Keep your weight left. Hit down and through the chip shot and pitch shot, and the club will do all the work and get it up. And if you get amateurs to get more on the left side and the swing down and through the shot and not try and scoop it with their hands – they're going to hit it a lot better, and they'll start getting a feel of what that feels like, and that's what, an, that's what a good golf shot's going to feel like as well. That's excellent. Larry, thank you very much for your time. I'm sure people will take a lot out of that, and I really appreciate it. Thank no, you very man. much. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast with Larry Mize as much as I did. I think he brought some brilliant information that we can all apply to our own games. Please feel free to share this episode with friends. And if you have a second, I would be grateful if you could leave a comment and review. Many thanks, and I will speak to you next time.